I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 415. Today in the show, I'm joined by wildlife habitat consultants Adam Keith and Matt Dye to discuss on-the-ground projects you can employ on your own dirt to help wildlife, plants, and the environment as a whole. All right. Welcome to the Wired Hunt podcast brought to you by First Light. Today, we are continuing our Conservation Month series. You know, like I mentioned uh, last week, Earth Day is coming up here in a matter of weeks, and that seems like a good of an excuse as any to step away from just hunting deer a little bit. And take a look at the resources and critters and places that make hunting possible. If we want to keep enjoying these things, it's on us to make sure we keep them thriving, intact, and healthy. So that's what this month is all about. Now, if you heard last week's podcast, you heard me chatting with Randy Newberg, and we were talking about conservation and policies related to public lands. Now, today I want to take a hard pivot focusing a little bit more on the conservation work that can be done on private land. And the stuff we're talking about today, unlike last week, this is not dependent on politicians or petitions or Congress or any kind of crap like that. This is the kind of stuff that we each can do ourselves without permission, without a penny from anyone else. And I think that's pretty cool. Now, across the U.S., we lose somewhere around 2 million acres of natural open space to development every year. That's deer habitat. That's grasslands. That's homes for turkeys and upland birds and clean streams and ponds and on and on and on. All these places and things that we all value, they're steadily disappearing year after year after year. This relentless push of civilization, it's not stopping anytime soon. So the question is, can we do anything about it? Now, my contention, my answer is that, yeah, especially if you're one of those people who does have a little bit of land that maybe you own, maybe that you lease. I think if you fall into that category, which, which I personally do, I think you can do a lot. And, you know, as I'm sure many of you have done yourselves, if you're in that group, you've certainly thought about what you could do on the ground to help your deer hunting. 
right? That's where I started too. But the next question is, have you thought about what you might be able to do beyond that? Could we deer hunters look at our properties and our work on them, not just as factories for pumping out deer, but as opportunities to improve biodiversity and healthy landscapes? Could these places be more than just great deer hunting properties? Could they also be refuges for all sorts of wildlife and plants and cleaner air and cleaner water? I think the answer is yes. It's something that I was looking at and working on with the whole Back 40 project over the past couple of years. And it's something that I'm you know, really interested in continuing to focus on in the future. And it's also something that our guests today believe in strongly as well. And that's Matt Dye and Adam Keith. They run Land and Legacy, which is a habitat consulting business. It's a podcast. It's a video series. And they're just doing great work to educate hunters on how to improve your land, how to manage your land. But how to, you know, I think uniquely, how to do that in a way where you're looking at the whole picture. They can take a very holistic approach to land work. They look beyond just deer. And that's what I wanted them to talk about here today. So that's what we're going to cover. We're going to cover the concepts and projects and actual on the ground work that we can do on our own dirt to make a positive difference for all the other critters that crawl at home and the land and the water and the soil. And if we can do that, I think we've done our job. And oh, by the way, you know, the deer hunting is going to improve too. There's no question about that. So that's our conversation coming up. I enjoyed it. It's going to be, I think, inspiration to get your hands dirty. I'm excited to be out there doing more work and kind of broadening my focus when it comes to what I do on these properties. So good stuff. I'm excited for you to give it a listen. But before that, we do have two quick housekeeping points. First, as you've hopefully heard already, our pals over at First Light launched Spectre. That is their whitetail camel pattern. It's out there in the wild. You can buy products in it now. Head on over to firstlight.com to check that stuff out. And alongside Spectre, First Light's also launched the Camo for Conservation initiative. So what this is, is that with every sale of anything printed in Spectre's camo, if there's Spectre camo on it and you buy it, a certain amount of money goes from that sale right to the National Deer Association to help with the important conservation work, the kind of stuff we're talking about today. So I'm I'm proud of First Light for doing this, for putting their money where their mouth is, for standing up and giving back to the resource that makes what we love possible. So kudos. Second little heads up for you is that my buddy Clay Newcomb, he was on the podcast a few weeks ago. Well, he's just launched his new podcast with Mediator. It's called Bear Grease. And this is a very unique kind of podcast. It's a documentary style. It looks at history and interesting people and cultures. I think you're really going to dig it. So check it on out. Again, it's called Bear Grease. You can find it on the Mediator website or wherever you get your podcasts. And with that out of the way, enough of me. Let's get to the conversation with Matt and Adam. Thank you for being here and tuning in. All right, with me on the line today, I am really excited to have Adam Keith and Matt Dye. Gentlemen, thank you for taking the time to be here today. Hey, thanks for having us. It's always a pleasure. Appreciate it, Mark. Yeah, this is uh, this is a conversation that, that I'm particularly excited about because this month of April, 
um, I decided to kind of run a series, a little mini series of podcasts here that I'm just going to kind of call it, this is a, a non-creative name, but it's Conservation Month. It's the month of April. It's the month of Earth Day. So there's obviously a lot of stuff that's going to be popping up in the news as that comes up. People talking about conservation and the environment and all these different things going on around the world. And it seemed like a good excuse to take a step away from how to kill big bucks and instead look at the what big deer hunting and what deer hunting stands on, which is the ground and the wildlife and the plant life and how we conserve these resources, how we keep these places here and healthy for us to enjoy and for the critters and everything else that calls them home. And so this month I'm having a bunch of different conversations with people about that. Some is about public land, uh, some's about private land, some's about um, you know high level policy things. And and then I also wanted to have a conversation like that which I think we're going to have here today, which is what can we actually do on the ground? You know, it's one thing to sign a petition to save the environment or to whatever, to support public lands. It's a whole nother thing to actually do a real action, take a real action that makes some kind of positive difference. And you guys probably see the same thing that I do. I, I, I bring up this quote all the time, and I know you guys know this one too, but there's the Leopold line where he says that you know, having a ecologist education is to um, be alone in a world of wounds, something along those lines. I'm paraphrasing. But basically, it's once you start paying attention to this stuff, you start seeing all the bad news, you start seeing all the damage on the landscape, you start noticing uh, all the different things that, that could be discouraging. Uh, a few numbers that I've seen recently – we're losing something like 2 million acres of natural land a year in the United States that's being developed or paved over or, or whatever. Uh, a recent report came out in 2019 showed that our bird populations across North America are crashing. 2.9 billion fewer birds over the last, I think it was 30 years or something like that. Grassland bird populations have declined 53%. Uh, there's a lot of talk about the challenges with rough grouse. Uh, you could go down the line with all these different things across the country that you could point to that would be concerning. Uh, at the same time, we're sitting here as hunters with a unique opportunity because what I can see, the numbers that I've been able to pull together show that somewhere around 356 million acres of land across this country are either owned or leased for hunting. So that's a big chunk of ground that people like us have some kind of say over. And we could either do some great stuff with that or we could do some less great stuff with that. So I look at that as like, a, hey, there's all these things that people are talking about and that, that maybe is cause for concern. And we actually have places that we can make a difference. And so this is the Wired Hunt podcast record for the longest diatribe in an introduction before letting the guest talk. But... <laughs> All of this is to say that I'm hoping you guys can help me think about ways that we can actually do something to help with this place we love and this place we call home. Uh, is that something that you guys are willing to talk about? <laughs> Absolutely. You know, I, I, I was happy just to hear you talking about, you know, the amount of acres that that are accessible to hunting or most importantly, a, a person who's hopefully has the interest of trying to improve that land for the wildlife. Even if it's just deer, he can do things that benefit other other creatures. That's a lot of land that could be improved. Uh, and I think it, it's all on our shoulders 
as as landowners, land managers, and people interested in it to spread the message uh, to other people, as well as just pick up a chainsaw or drip torch and do it ourselves. And uh, so we're absolutely all in on talking about it. Yeah, and you know what I'm what I'm hoping we can do today is kind of take a little different look at on the ground work because so often whether it's on this podcast or in magazines or TV shows or anywhere when people talk about habitat work it's usually you know how do I make my deer hunting better and and that's something that we all enjoy and we all want to talk about and there's nothing wrong with that um but there are other things going on in the landscape as i just mentioned there's there's a lot of ways that maybe we can help other species and other parts of this ecosystem that all are interconnected um so I know this is something that you guys talk about a lot and think about a lot. It's it's the reason why I thought you guys would be the right people to talk to on this topic. When did you guys start looking at your work on the ground, your habitat work and management? When did you, and I don't know, maybe this is something you did from the beginning. You'll have to tell me. But has it always been this holistic viewpoint where you've looked at all species and, and all aspects of it? Or did you come into this with a deer, deer, deer focus and then eventually realize that there's more to it? Uh, how, what's your guys' personal evolution been around this? That's a, that's a great question. I, and I think that for, for both of us, we've, we've had similar, say, work experiences and that um, the changes in work experiences has allowed us to expand and go in directions that allowed us to really get back to, I would say, naturally what our roots are as individuals and the way that we grew up on the landscape. Um, you look, you, you can't deny the connections of the natural world and how things are just so intertwined and, and there's balances and things like that. So, so we recognize that um, by just spending time outside when we were young and then going into the field of, of very heavy deer management I think it was always in us that, man, we wanted to do something that was, was bigger than just deer. I certainly went through the stage of being a deer snob where you focus solely on deer and that's really all you care about. And then you transition later on at some point. It may have been different for us, but Matt, you can continue. Yeah, I, I just, you can't help but notice if you're observing. I think that's what, you know, as a land steward, as a hunter, um, as a leasee of property, as a public land hunter, doesn't matter who you are, you spend time outside. If you are observant enough, or you crank up how observant you are from where you're at now, whatever level you are, you'll see how different species will utilize different types of habitat. And then when you begin to pick up a chainsaw or try different techniques, you can't help notice how then they react to that. And I think that, let's say, level of intensity of being observant and carefully watching that really just fueled the passion for learning more and more and more about the connectivity that, that we stated earlier. And that, man, this is bigger than just deer because we see rabbits populations explode. We see rodent populations uh, change. We see insect populations change by just managing specifically for different habitat types. And again, it's all connected. Turkeys need insects. I mean, it, you would just keep going this circle and circle and circle. And it's like, man, this needs to be the approach opposed to all I care about is a single species of deer and what they need. There's more there. I, I, I'll piggyback on that. When I was 
in my early 20s or teenage years going in early 20s. I was definitely a deer focus only guy. And then as I grew up, though, I, at, at a young part of my life, I, I quail hunted. And about the early 20s, I noticed that that covey of quail we always saw on a part of the farm were gone. And we we saw them every other year or every three years. It just was not a regular occurrence like it was as a kid. And having that connection to small game hunting and seeing the decline in a very short window and then hearing whispers of turkey numbers declining, to me, I hit the fast forward button and tried to see my life as a 50-year-old going, we're going to be talking about turkeys the same way my father talks about quail if we don't do something now. And so it quickly, I guess, uh, double speed, got into the the older, how do I say this and, and put it nicely, talking like the older man, the older gentleman with white hair that's talking about the good old days and when everything was great and focused more on the conservation side than the big buck. And it was like, oh, I'm 30 years old and that's what we're talking about because that's what I can see happening very quickly is we're going to be talking about the good old days really quickly. And I don't want that to happen. So let's get after management for small game. Oh, and by the way, we started seeing changes that were benefiting the deer too. And once you see that, you see that even though I'm not focused on deer, but I'm doing things that are beneficial to all these other species, but the deer are benefiting just as much as they were before, you can quickly say, okay, uh, I'll gladly take on this mindset. Yeah. What do you guys think? Like, I know your fingers on the pulse of this um, community within the hunting community, right? Those of us that, that manage to some degree or, or own land or work on land, steward land. Um, there's a whole lot of different media out there. There's a whole lot of different people working on it. There's, of course, organizations that help with this stuff. How do you guys feel about where it's trending? Do you feel like we're trending, you know, more towards this holistic viewpoint? Or do you guys kind of feel like uh, shouts in the wind that that isn't necessarily being reflected by the rest of the uh, of where things are going? I don't know. Do you, do you feel like we're going the right direction? Are we still too I'm heavy feeling- into single focus? I'm feeling pretty good, to be honest with you. Yeah. I've noticed you you cruise through social media, and uh, you can see in, in Habitat chat rooms, you can see a lot more talks about Matt and I will have a conversation. I've seen more people talking about edge feathering when five years ago, when you mentioned it, people were like, is that something that seems like something only the government talks about? And and so more edge feathering talks, more pollinator talks, more overall forest health um talks or forest management techniques invasive species is coming up and so many conversations i would say i'm very encouraged with the number of people talking about it caring about it very proactive in their management decisions that are progressing towards a greater focus broader land health opposed to a single species and i think that that's just going to continue to grow um because it's very collective, you, you capture a lot of audiences with that type of mindset, um, opposed to just you know worrying about inches of antler on on a deer's head. Not that that's necessarily wrong. It's just we can we can cast a bigger net with that approach and impact things greater than than just a deer. So, to someone who who at this point in their kind of journey is still very focused on man, I want better deer hunting. 
And that's where I'm at right now. And, you know, that's what I've been focused on and that's what I love. What would you, what would your pitch be to them to look beyond that? Would you, would you give them a pitch or would you say, just keep on keeping on? Um, what would you say to someone right now who's thinking like, "Eh, I don't know if I want to listen to this or not? Yeah, certainly. Uh, I think the, one of the big things in that pitch that we would give that person is that, you know, I, I, for me, it's always about let's make the biggest impact with the least amount of dollars and the quickest amount of time possible. And so I think in the hunting world, especially deer, we think of like certain products and fads. And I almost have a little bit leery saying that, but there's been a lot of techniques as like pitched to us in a way that this is the ticket to bigger deer. But in reality, if you stop doing that, or let's just say food plots, for example, if all you did was food plots and for one year you didn't plant your food plots and you came back the next year, you might see that it's a more annual base of weeds. But within a few years, you're going to see that that work that you did on that food plot is gone, erased. You couldn't even tell that you put it there. When a lot of the practices that we promote, and certainly to our clientele on our consulting business, is lasting um, lasting practices that you're going to get bigger antlers. You're going to get healthier deer, more deer. Uh, if that's in a, if you're in an area where you have a lower population and overall, you're going to have a healthier ecosystem and it probably doesn't cost you near as much money and headache as it did when you focus solely on the deer. And I guess that would be kind of my, my pitch to those guys is just give me five minutes to prove to you that, there's gaps in your way of thinking and way of management, and we can quickly fix those and take you so much further along in the health of a white-tailed deer. Okay. Well, I'm convinced. Um, <laughs> let's let's say now we're in a position where I've got I've got the deer hunting side checked off. At least I've got the basics figured out. I know a handful of things I'm doing on my property to improve my deer hunting. Um, I've got a, a strategy around why I'm doing and, and what I'm doing it for and how I'm doing it. But, but I also am thinking that I want to, I want to start taking a, a different look at things and, and learning about how I can make a bigger difference, how I can think beyond just deer. If you've got someone who's at the beginning of this and wanting to start, you know, just wrapping their head around, like what is important, what would be the couple most important concepts to start thinking about for somebody like that. For me, like the, the word that jumps to mind or one of the words that jumps to mind to me is, is diversity. Um, but I'm curious to you guys, what would some of these like foundational concepts be? If we we're just trying to lay a groundwork for, okay, if you're trying to look at improving an overall ecosystem, these are the types of ideas that you need want to learn about and think about and that will guide our actual tactical decisions down the line. Are there a few things that come to mind? Yeah, you just opened up a a huge can of worms (laughs) for the direction that this conversation can go. And and that's a good thing because there's a lot of avenues to start with. Um, For for a guy, I think, who has got some deer things figured out, and you said to improve my deer hunting, um, I I think, and this is where a lot of people can can branch off from in in their line of thinking, is don't think about September through December so much as now let's change some of our focus from January through August. Let's let's look at what the rest of the year means for deer specifically. And then when you do that, you'll start to focus and realize that I need 
um, shrubs. I need woody brows available. I need young forage in the form of forbs for lactating does, fawning cover. I need high diversity, like you said there, um, of that for antler growth and the dietary needs of white-tailed deer that then reflect, you know, how my hunting season will go in the months to follow. But as soon as we begin thinking about those months outside of hunting season, you quickly begin to look at the overall health of the landscape and what forages are available um, and, and essentially what other ecological uh, plant species, plant communities are available on your given property that you have to manage. Yeah. And so you summed it up. Diversity, another common one that we use is return on investment. It's kind of a business term, but we we bring it in a lot for our management and then prioritizing. And so, you know, you look at prioritizing and going, how, how do I even begin? And it's going, where is my biggest turnaround going to happen? If you own a farm that's mostly timber, well, by golly, you're a timber manager. Long before you're a deer manager, you need to focus on managing that timber. And so prioritizing your farm and making sure that you're managing the biggest scale rather than um, looking at some of your very small ratio, less than 5%, and saying this is where I'm focusing my time when you're not having a very high return on your investment by managing there. So t- tell me a little bit more about that process. What's if, if I were looking at my property, and of course, everyone's going to have a different story here, but let's talk high level. If I'm looking at my property and trying to think, okay, how do I prioritize? How do I determine what's the best bang for my buck, whether that's my time, my energy, my money? Uh, I want to make a positive difference on the land. I'm trying to look beyond just deer. I need to start prioritizing and thinking about where do I start? What's going to be the greatest impact? How do I like, what are the questions I should be asking? What's the process I should be going through? Absolutely. And so one of the big things would be kind of understanding our native um, ecological site history and saying, okay, let's just, for example, say I'm somewhere in the Midwest and I'm mostly a forested property. We would look at that and going, well, priority says, and return on investment says that we need to focus on the timber first. That's where we'll try to maximize that as far as uh, for a white-tailed deer hunter and say, okay, well, let's, how do we diversify a forest? Well, we can change the age structure of that forest. We can do a couple of clearings, small clearings, one to three acres, and say, I'm going to cut everything and create young forest pockets, um, temporary forest openings, where I just cut everything and I mix in a few hinge cuts and I flush cut a whole bunch of stuff. And I encourage woody browse um, availability in these one to three acres and also phenomenal cover. Well, then so I step away from that and say, okay, well, what else can I do? Well, typically in the forest, there is... Matt can probably, I'll give him one second to name all the forests he's been in that need uh, no work in them. It's zero. (laughs) And so almost every forest we go into, it's shocking how mismanaged they are. And some of them go from uh, management of preserving it to death to active management of not really doing the right practices or overcutting. And so 
we'll go and say, let's let's just try to do something, a general term crop tree release. Let's just focus on the crop trees, the ones that are the tallest, have the biggest canopy, look the healthiest, and let's cut the competition out from around them. This is going to add even more woody browse. It's going to add even more sunlight hitting the forest floor, so we'll get some more herbaceous plants. And we're going to do that, generally speaking, let's start on the south-facing slopes or the west-facing slopes so we can get the quickest amount of growth because we're going to get more sunlight there. And then overall, you just big scale say, how do you diversify that? And you're going to get that with your terrain features. You're going to get probably higher stem counts on your east and north facing slopes. You're going to get more of a herbaceous return or herbaceous plant growth and grasses on your south and west facing slopes. And then you can diversify your temporary forest openings where you have them on each different type of slope. So if it's middle of the winter, you know, they're probably on the south facing slopes and the temporary forest openings versus the north facing during the early season when they still have a it's still hot, but they have a winter coat on. And I guess that that, that really covered very quickly what someone could do in the timber. But everyone probably has got um openings to some degree or a percentage of open areas on a farm. And one of the first things that people want to do or consider is to plant a food plot. Well, if we're thinking about a landscape health and, and diversifying what it is we offer um, and how that may be able to benefit rabbits, songbirds, uh, woodland birds, ground nesting birds, strongly should consider doing a practice called old field management. And a lot of these openings um, probably have some sort of pasture grass um, in them. We see fescue, smooth brome, bahia grass in a lot of openings, and they're just left unmanaged. Um, so if you remove that type of grass to let the native seed bank express itself and do so for several years and come back with prescribed fire or dormant season disking, you'll get a lot of annual weeds, you'll get shrub components, You'll get forbs and brambles, and that all serves the purpose of lots of food, lots of cover for, I mean, we can't even list probably in an hour the number of species that could benefit to some degree out of that specific type of management, um, opposed to just turning all the openings into a food plot. Um, so finding that balance of having a food plot, but then just allowing natural progressions or, or what we term as succession, um, natural succession of plant communities just develop themselves from the seed bank, allow that to occur. And it makes sense if you think about it, because that's what before, you know, agriculture was even started in the U.S. or food plots were ever even planted. And that's what these species that we're seeing decline or that we should care about broaden our horizons too. Well, that's what they lived off of. So that's an extreme decline um, as well as those, those whether it's bird population or insect populations, that's what they need. And so let's create something that they need. But man, at the same time, that is wonderful fawning cover and tons of food value for a white-tailed deer, or that's brooding cover for a wild turkey, or nesting cover for a wild turkey. I think in the there's there's some some literature that suggests like 3,000 to 3,500 pounds of digestible forage in a well-managed old field system, whereas a closed canopy system of one acre is roughly 50 to 100 pounds of digestible food for a deer. 
So just the value that that can bring to deer as well as many other critters is huge. It's huge. Yeah. I was just going to ask you to, to tackle why diversity is important in a system like this, but, but you, you maybe just answered the question for me when you said that, you know, this is how these animals evolve. They, 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 this is what the natural ecosystem was like before humans came in and started, you know, creating these monocultures, right? Nature abhors a vacuum and nature abhors a monoculture. There's, there's almost nothing in nature without humans intervention where it's all the same thing. It's almost always, always, always a diverse system of plant life and different types and different succession levels. Um, Do you think that's it? Is that why diversity seems to be a, uh, just a keystone value add for anything when you're trying to manage a landscape or is there anything else there to it? I I mean, that pretty well sums it up. When you think about the two main natural disturbances that occurred, you had fires and you had grazing and each one of those, depending on what time of the year that disturbance occurs, stimulates certain type of plant communities. And if you have just massive bison herds slamming across the country and and changing the plant communities at the same time there's fire quickly you can see that over the course of 100 years of just that you're going to have a very diverse ecosystem and to dial it in as far as just insects there are certain plants that attract certain insects so if you look at from a, a bird or a turkey or a quail standpoint you need multiple types of plants that attract certain types of insects so therefore you have more insects in that area than just a monoculture where there may only be certain type of insects attracted to that plant or needing that plant during a certain window of time in the year. And so if you can think about it from that standpoint, it, it really uh, it really opens up your eyes to saying, okay, regardless of what I do in my landscape, diversity is key. Yeah. And, and you just think about food availability too. go back, go back to something that we're all familiar with the white tailed deer, right? There's 300 some plus forages that they eat. So that's just what they eat, not necessarily what they bed in, what they need to uh, for escape cover or fawning cover. And so just in that one single species, that's a vast number of, of plants. They don't utilize a monoculture. So so why as a manager would I try and have or utilize a monoculture to attract them and think that I'm making the biggest um, difference? But we go into, you know, birds, we go into small mammals, we go into insects, and the number of species that they utilize is drastically different from, from uh, white-tailed deer, but it's, it, it's not one gold and silver bullet, I guess, silver bullet to, to fix things. And we try and work with our clients and get them to the idea that we're not managing a plant, we're managing plant communities. It's, it's a group of plants and therefore at the end of that you have diversity just naturally occurring on that landscape um so hopefully people understand that it's a community it's 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 multiple aspects coming together that creates the diversity that really will make a difference in in an impact for a vast number of species yeah that makes a lot of sense can you can you give me an example of of one of these plant communities and and we could kind of use that example to then explore the different things we could be thinking about, the things we could be doing. Um, 
uh, I mean, maybe there's literally something you guys have actually been out working on recently that might be a good way to illustrate some of these things. Anything come to mind? Uh, I guess if we wanted to go, yeah, old field where uh, you just look at the secession and how that progresses over time. Let's just take a a field that was uh, a person bought an old farm and it's got a cool season grass, old pasture where they had cows and you go in and remove that. And I, and I'm not afraid to say it, but it's going to take a one or two treatment of herbicide and you're going to spray out that cool season grass during a time of the year when most of the natives are dormant and you're going to remove that monoculture and you're going to see certain species probably pop up like crazy. You'll see common ragweed, depending on the site, but that's a, a very common one. Pokeberry or pokeweed. Um, you're going to see a lot more brambles pop um, that'll be goldenrod. young. Goldenrod will be a very big one. A lot of milkweed typically, and I'm thinking of one site individual, uh, yep. one site specific that comes to mind in this. Um, mare's tail. Um Burnweed, possibly uh, just a lot of the the that, annuals that come up that are all native. Deer do forage on some of them, or hammer other ones of like common ragweed is phenomenal deer browse, and you'll see that be pretty good cover, but not phenomenal, especially not if you're in the north where you're going to have a lot of snow, and it may all a lot of it may get knocked over. But you'll see over year two or three, some grasses probably start to fill in, and those grasses can withstand the uh, the snow a little better in the wind. And so you've got clumps that are staying standing. And then if you don't do anything over time, you'll see some shrubs form, or there might be the dotted eastern red cedar that pops up. And then all of a sudden, over five years, you went from a very annual base, which was phenomenal forage during the the especially the early spring, long before soybeans or corn starts to germinate, it's green. There's forage there. And then in the middle of summer, it's it's actually going to be kind of hard to beat the amount of forage that's out there because it's native species that are adapted to heat. And so when soybean leaves are turning up and not being as palatable and not as selected by the deer, you've got ragweed leaves that are like, I'm built for this. I'm good, and they still look great, and deer are hammering it. And just over time, you'll see that transition where you'll have still the annual base, but probably starting to go more towards a perennial base and have a lot more forage from woody browse available. Uh, and so just over time, you can have that diversity occur, or you can add the diversity by planting. There, there's a video that we shot um, that comes to mind on, on our social media um, we're standing adjacent to a field that had just been removed the year prior of a cool season uh, grass. It was smooth brome. And then that butted up to a tillable field soybeans. And this is in June time frame. And uh, this is just year one after removing that smooth brome, which is the cool season monoculture, essentially, next to um, a monoculture of soybeans where we sprayed it out, what came back um, was a lot of native grasses, the forbs um, that Adam mentioned earlier, um, milkweed. And and we we're standing at this divide, basically, of, of rich diversity that, that used to be historically native prairies. And we were seeing those prairie plant communities coming back year one. And there were quail whistling. There were grasshoppers hopping as we we're walking out through um, the system. There were monarch butterflies floating around. I mean, we were counting them almost by the dozens. And then 
to the left, we were standing in, it was ankle high, maybe shin high soybeans, and there was no life whatsoever. There was no grasshoppers hopping. There was no little um, spiders running across the ground. There was nothing besides soybeans. And so just looking at the two, uh, and that had been created in a short matter of time, you see diversity create life opposed to a monoculture that essentially doesn't have like an insurance policy. Um, no, I mean, but all your eggs in one basket, hundred percent. So, so if you're playing a monoculture, it's, it's do or die, um, make or break situations. But, but when we're managing natural plant communities that are diverse, you have other plants that, that do better. Let's say you get a drought. They do better in a drought situation opposed to ones that do better when you get um, your annual rain per precipitation amounts. And so you have this almost built-in insurance of habitat and forage value every single year if you, if you focus on managing for plant communities and diverse landscapes opposed to a monoculture. Um, so they're just, you know, a quick example of how those two systems adjacent to each other Anybody in the video could just watch it and see, holy cow, this this is this is exactly what we're talking about. There's a clear difference between silence and buzzing and yeah. the ambient sounds that you'll hear in on nature apps of like there's all kinds of birds and insects just singing over here and it's not happening over here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So in in a situation like that where you describe step one being remove the monoculture the smooth brome or whatever it might be in your area. And then you describe, you know, letting nature take its course from there and, and letting those, uh, whatever was in the seed bed previously come back and take advantage of, you know, the, the new sunlight and space. But what if we want to do more from there or, or how do we know if we should do more or do less or just let it go? Or, uh, you know, when it comes to old field management, I know there's a lot to it, so we can, we can kind of, look at some beginner steps, I guess, for folks that are looking at this as a way to improve diversity, improve food and cover and all these different types of values for many, many species. It seems like this is definitely one of those best uh, or most um, most achievable initial goals. So, so where would we go from there? Yeah. And I think that's where you can look at, okay, let's just try to categorize certain plant communities and say, what is here? Where's the gaps? Let's fill the voids and say, okay, well, this is a field, so to speak. So I'm not really targeting tree like oak trees. Uh, I could plant them around the edges if I want, but let's just focus. I've got acres and acres and acres of oak hickory forest. I don't need that. Let's maximize what's happening here in this old field. And I know I have a lot of annual weeds coming up. They're all native. That's great. One of the biggest things we want to do to ensure the longevity of this area is to remove invasive species and constantly be monitoring for invasive species. And the reason we don't like those is they're not native. They don't benefit wildlife nearly as much. If they benefit some insects, it's a short list compared to a native plant that benefits a long list of insects. So I just want to remove those and make sure that they're not taking over this area, not having any natural predators. They can quickly get ahead of the native plants. So I'm going to do that, but I'm also looking to say, okay, this area was, let's just say it's all been grass. Well, I don't like grass. Even that's a monoculture. We've sprayed out the smooth brome. Now we have forbs coming back or broad leaves, flowering plants. And then I look Can and I, I say, okay. 
can I interject yeah. one quick question? When it yeah. comes to that very first step, spraying out some of these big grassy fields that are just nothing but something like that, is that literally all you'd have to do, or do you need to burn off the 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 dead stuff that you sprayed, or mow it down, or anything, or just by spraying, stuff will still be able to come up even through all that residue on top? It might take a little bit longer, but stuff will still come up. Burning would be great, but in a lot of states, guys are a little bit scared or a state regulations don't allow it. If it's me personally, I'm burning the baby. I, I, I'm setting it on fire because it makes me feel good to go, okay, I sprayed this area out and now I burned it and I have a clean slate and there's plenty of soil exposed that's getting ready to explode in life. Plus that burning could probably, or that burning helps suppress any grasses that you may have missed because you're, it's, it's getting ready to hit its peak performance time and you set it back with a fire. So fire certainly helps, but it's not necessarily needed. You'll still get diversity. It will just come as a little bit delayed in the growing season as it's trying to struggle and pop through the thatch that you sprayed. Yeah. But it's not 100% necessary. Okay. Yeah. Continue. Sorry, you're going somewhere there. Uh, <laughs> and so I look at that and I say, okay, well, I'm missing grasses native grasses. I'm missing the bunch grasses. And so I could say, all right, let's find a few areas. Let's, let's broadcast a little bit of little blue stem or uh, switch grass or even some Indian grass and big blue stem. But I'm not going to get carried away because I don't want to come back in five years and have monoculture of native warm season grass. That's not my goal. And so I'm just doing a little bit scattered around where ultimately my end goal is to have about 25% or less in native grasses. And so I've done that. I look around. I say, what shrubs are here? Well, the only shrubs that are there, I'll use the Michigan reference for you, is autumn olive. Yep. And I'm going, oh, I'm not so much in love with autumn olive. And so this is where we're going to take lemons and make lemonade. And instead of just cutting it and removing it, getting it out of there, I'm going to take it and I'm going to cut that thing down, but I'm going to leave it exactly where it fell. And I'm going to key in on some of the native shrubs that I want to see. So it may be nannyberry, or it may be red osier dogwood, or it may be American plum. Um, nine bark. Is nine bark. Uh, there's a long list of native shrubs to whatever state you're in. And you can take those, buy them from a state nursery, or find a local source where you can get them pretty cheaply, and take five of those and drop them, sink them in with a sharp shovel, and plant them in the top of that canopy of that, of that autumn olive that you cut. So instead of having to use plastic tubes and plastic pipe, and then go back years later and remove that, just let that natural, uh, woody vegetation from that autumn olive be your cage or your barrier and help protect that young shrub at a young stage and then let it grow up out of that as that, as that top decomposes. Think of it as like a, a utilization cage for shrubs. Yeah, it's kind of protecting when it's young, right? So they're not getting over browsed or nipped. Um, and then you've treated that stump of, of the autumn of course. And now you've got, you've replaced a, a shrub with now a native option. Um, and they're going to grow kind of unencumbered or not browsed, super heavy. And you'll get a, a, a wonderful colony of shrubs, which that's typically how shrubs are growing, uh, colony-type forming. You're just replicating nature by, if you do edge feathering or anything where you drop a tree, birds perch on that tree and, and poop out the berries 
and then that starts to grow up out of that thing. We're just speeding up the process by giving a year-old sapling or a year-old bare root seedling in that in that top. And just by doing that, now we've encouraged native grasses, we've got forbs, and we've got shrubs, which can provide both cover and woody browse. And so the next stage would be how quickly can we get brambles into this? How quickly can we get blackberries? And if it's not real regularly occurring in that site, you haven't seen it there before, you can buy some of those and start planting them around in some colonies. And that way you can provide even more woody browse, but cover for small game species like uh, cottontail rabbits or bobwhite quail. I would say specifically with this type of technique that we chose to discuss, old field management, let time be on your side. Because a lot of the stuff that we're talking about, the diversity comes with time. And sometimes sometimes just our human nature is we want to expedite this process. We want to jump ahead. We want to leapfrog and see um, these things change. And, and we can take some um, some of those necessary steps and do that like Adam talked about. But oftentimes, if we're trying to replicate what naturally happened – Sometimes the best thing to do is just let nature run its course and and work itself because we're we're taking away the monoculture that that humans you know put there right and now why don't we just let the succession take it take over and and in the meantime although it may take four or five years for things to develop let's not be misunderstood that years one two and three aren't providing benefits for a whole host of species. If year four and five is what we want to get, years one, two, and three are still fantastic for certain species. And, and, and when we take that broad approach of trying to trying to um, embrace diversity, then there's a lot of wins years one, two, and three that we can we can celebrate along the way as nature or succession um, is, is taking place. Would you say that this kind of project, this kind of um, plant community, you know, fostering something like this, it's got to be one of the very best bang for your buck type of impacts you can make for upland birds, songbirds, turkeys, small mammals, pollinators. Uh, I mean, all of those critters thrive in these young, you know, early successional old field type situations like this. Would you agree? Oh, I, I would. Yeah, for sure. Easy. The the one thing, I guess the misconception that I see correlated with old field management and why some people may have a bad taste for it is converting tillable acres or acres that had heavy herbicide use for years and years and years, and they don't get that response as quickly. Old field is best whenever it's a site that hasn't been completely sprayed out or tilled up in, in years previously. So, if you're if you're going with a if you're going with an old tillable field, you may you may be better off planting a mix. To be honest with you, and and honestly, Mark, one one thing to ask you with your experience on the back forty that your audience is probably familiar with, those fields that were kind of left, um, those had a previous history of being farmed. Is that correct? Yeah. So the, the what you just mentioned, what Adam just mentioned, is exactly the scenario we had. It had been farmed. Heavily, heavily, heavily sprayed, heavily, you know, turned over for decades, and then and then we picked it up. So, so yeah, we had that situation, and and what we had coming back once we left at Fallow was, you know, pretty thick stands of mare's tail, 
a few places yeah. where we had goldenrod, but we weren't getting the diversity you know, you'd hoped for. Um, and that mare had likely built up a resistance, I'm assuming, to the herbicide use. So that's why it had a leg up on everybody. Yeah, yeah. So that was a doozy. And, and you know, the way I tried to approach it, not that I knew everything that I was doing. I was, I was testing things and trying things, but we did have to apply some herbicide. And that made a big mm-hmm. difference, actually. That, you know, knocked a lot, a lot of that. I used a pre-emergent and... With nothing else, just getting rid of that mare's tail, it opened up the possibility for so much more diversity to come in that next year. And then we did do some spot broadcasting, frauds, fraud, excuse me, frost seeding of switchgrass. We got some of that coming back. We got some natural diversity coming back. Um, so in that experience, you know, year one when we didn't do anything, it was a mare's tail forest and it was a desert of wildlife in a lot of places. Year two, with that herbicide treatment and a little bit of switchgrass and a few other things we did, we, we saw a very noticeable difference. Um, obviously a long ways to go still, but it was a very encouraging change just with that. So I could see how, you know, some continued TLC along those lines opens up the possibility for nature to do it what it wants to do. Um, but it's a little bit different, like you said. Yeah. And because, I mean, you're really, you're behind the eight ball when you're waiting on that secession. You're like, okay, we've removed the crops. Let's just see what grows back. But ultimately, the seeds that were in that soil have been killed off with herbicide or tillage. And so you're honestly waiting for native seeds to drift in and make good seed to soil contact. So it's a lot slower of a process trying to convert old tillable acres into beautiful, diverse old fields. As opposed to a pasture that hasn't had that cropping type history, we've seen unreal results in a matter of a year or two years in that type of situation. I think of of many different states and clients who are experiencing just kind of singing praises of old field. But that's where it's important to know what what the land use was on a specific site before you go into um, a specific management technique, or or if you don't know it, you don't have that information, you may need to adjust some on the fly, like you guys did, um, and kind of coach along or develop a, a plan to encourage diversity in other ways. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver, off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid, and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And, as often is the case, those guys were on to something. Because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from heart and soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised grass-fed and finished cattle heart and soils unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean convenient taste-free capsule find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. 
O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. You know, in talking about this, we've talked about herbicide use. And when you guys were on the show two years ago, we tackled this topic. Um, but I want to I wanna hit on it again just for those who maybe didn't hear that first one. Um, you know, we're talking about trying to do things that are right for the environment. We're trying to make a, a broader positive difference for the animals, for the plant life, et cetera. Um, when, you, when you hear about trying to do those things and then you hear about applying chemicals that kill stuff, there, you know, there are some concerns. Like, are we actually helping things? Are we applying these chemicals in a way that actually is more negative? You know, there's, there's a, there's a lot of acceptance of herbicide use within the wildlife management community. There's, there's more concern about it, maybe outside of it in a larger environmental context. Um, I know this is something you guys are thoughtful about and have, have put some thought towards. Could you kind of give me your two cents on, you know, using herbicide in a responsible way to, uh, to ensure we don't have any negative environmental impacts? Absolutely. I think one of the first things I should address in this conversation, because it seems like a reoccurring conversation we've had with people, is the the agricultural world that is trying to weed out and not use herbicides as much are guys who are basically managing uh, their farm that is 80% acres that are going to get some sort of treatment herbicide. From a land manager or a whitetail guy's standpoint, we're probably on average, based on our conversations and polling that we've done, which is uh, which we seem like is a fair guess, but most of our guys are managing, their food plots are, all, are almost always less than 5% of the total acreage, um, which is where most of our herbicide use comes from. And then the old fields are, I wish we had more old fields, but really I've not been on a property where I can say more than 50% of the property was old field. And the way we're using herbicide in old field management is almost always a one or two twice treatment of herbicide and then we're done with it for for a long long time unless it's spot treatment which may be a few little areas here and there to remove invasives or uh, non-natives that that we just didn't get rid of the first time so there's a big difference between the herbicide use that whitetail guys will use versus agricultural now in regards to do i love herbicide no do I love the tool? Yes, because it helps me remove monocultures and invasive species much quicker than trying to burn my way to success. And a lot of times there's 
uh, there's non-natives that you just can't burn out. They're there forever. And uh, if, if you're trying to manage them with fire, like Cerisa Lespediza. So I look at it as a tool to remove uh, a non-native and it may be a one step backwards to take three giant leaps forward in the stance of old field management or prairie restoration. And so that's where I don't love it. And certainly if I'm using it and I'm getting it on my skin, I'm doing it wrong. So that's kind of my, Matt, you got yeah, anything to add on I, I that? I would certainly say that think of it like just about any other tool that a land manager could use, a chainsaw or prescribed fire or grazing. Um, those are some of the big ones that Alder Leopold talked about. Let's throw herbicide into that category or, or to the list of the, as a tool. You can overuse a chainsaw. You can cut way too much or you may not cut enough. So understanding how to use that tool is important. Same thing with prescribed fire. You may not be burning enough or you be, may be burning too much. Um, there's a lot of places in the country that burn way too much and others that don't burn nearly enough. There's people who overgraze areas and then there's some places that don't get grazed when they should. And I think of herbicides as certainly it's a wise use and a very specific application. There's some instances where I think people way overuse herbicide and then there's other instances where people don't use it and their habitat is actually declining because they haven't addressed it with the proper step or the proper tool when they can do it very simply in a very safe, controlled, maybe it's just a spot treatment um, situation, and then the worry is essentially neutralized in a way and they're progressing habitat further. Yeah, It needs to be utilized appropriately and in a controlled manner. If there's other options, I'm gonna to resort to that first, of course, but if I need to use it, I'm going to use it very appropriately. Yeah, I, I, the end goal is a, a diverse, healthy ecosystem. And if using a herbicide gets me there quicker than tillage, and which can be argued that is not great for the soil health at all. So basically, whatever whatever tool we have to use to get to a healthy, diverse ecosystem the quickest, that's what we want to use. And a lot of times, herbicide, uh, a selective herbicide uh, can be that best tool for us. Yeah. Appropriately yeah. applied. Yeah. So let's keep talking about some of these tools. Uh, we've, we've talked a lot about in the old field management kind of system, the herbicide plays a key role. Um, another tool would be the chainsaw, like you mentioned, and doing things within the timber, forest management, edge, feather, edge feathering, et cetera. Um, can you, can you talk a little bit about how someone could be thinking about using a chainsaw to improve their landscape for, for the wider, the wider array of critters? What are the, some of those main things that you would be pointing folks towards at the beginning? And, and what are the key things to be, um, to be thinking about before starting a project like that? Yeah, I'm, I would say you don't need a forestry degree to be able to go into most forest and look at it critically and see that there is stress, there is too many stems per acre, there is disease, there are weed trees out there that need to be removed. Again, you, you can just look and see that. And so there's a great option of utilizing a chainsaw to reduce the canopy, encourage sunlight to reach the forest floor. And I, I don't know what percentage necessarily of songbirds are woodland type songbirds or have a woodland 
um, as part of their life cycle that they need, um, whether it's reproduction, breeding, um, feeding. But it is a strong, strong number of songbirds that need a woodland-type setting. Um, so if you go in and you reduce the canopy by by 30%, remove the junk or the weed trees that are dying out. One, I know by research that you've increased deer forage by 500%. If you go in and reduce the canopy by 30% and add fire, well, that's wonderful. Any deer hunter's like, wow, that's great. I, I love the sounds of that. But the songbirds have just uh, erupted in, in, in that same type of situation because that's what they need as well. We've, we've seen that on uh, your guys' family's farm with yeah. Scarlet Tanagers. Yeah, absolute an explosion of, of birds that aren't the the typical birds you would see in the Ozark Mountains. And, and just by doing some chainsaw work and fire, it's all of a sudden we've got different gross beaks. We've got, I mean, just rainbow effect of, of birds from indigo buntings to scarlet tanagers to gross beaks to goldfinches. And there we are nerding about birds. But at the same time, it's providing just tons and tons and tons of food and cover for whitetail deer. So uh, the chainsaw, I, I, you know, when you ask about tools, I wanted to interrupt and say chainsaw and a drip torch. There are no other tools, but herbicide does come in. So um, those two being just phenomenal and, and marrying those two together is just a, an, a, an amazing an amazing thing for a lot of landscapes. And you take a chainsaw, you've got edge feathering, you've got general TSI. You do have hinge cutting, and I think sometimes people don't really look at Matt and I's hinge cut guys, but we do include hinge cuts in a lot of work we do. We just don't get crazy with it and go more than 50% of our cuts. Um, and we only do it on smaller mid-story type trees. Um, and just I mean, other practices, old field management, anytime you've got fields that are are fields that have a scattered big tall tree um, you could cut that down and provide more cover for wildlife as well as no longer being a perch for a raptor to to swoop down and kill your uh, to kill your birds. quail or a great horn to sit in there and uh, go down and swipe that whitetail fawn so um, you know if it's going to be a field manage it as a field and try to get rid of some of those tall scattered trees in particular I think of Siberian elms or Russian elms that we see so much scattered out on open areas. And the, the other thing, too, is going back to that word you brought into the conversation, Mark, with a chainsaw, well, the word was diversity, but with the chainsaw, you're, you're, you're changing the structure and the age of trees. You're not necessarily killing them with a chainsaw. You're just resetting them and taking them back down to, you know, a stump where they can re-sprout and be better cover for animals that are living on the ground. You know, think of think of the ability for a treetop to be laid across. And now we've got um, more of a preferential area for a turkey to be able to lay a nest. in. now because a treetop is on the ground opposed to just leaf litter um, and then the stump erupts the next year with with growth that kind of forms a, a temporary shrub. Um, we didn't kill that tree. We just reset it and changed its form and put it into a form that now allows for diversity within a, a woodlot um, or, or a forest. So I, I got to take you back to the hinge cut thing, because as you mentioned, a lot of people look at hinge cutting as like that gateway drug or like entryway into timber work. A lot of people get excited about it. They do a ton of it. Uh, it seems 
Uh, it seems like a good bang for your buck type of situation. There's all these upsides to it, supposedly. Give me your take on on why you would be worried about going too too far in that direction, or what's what's the risk in doing too much hinge cutting? Why should we not um, go full bore crazy with that? So I see a lot of times with with all of our work, a couple of things come to mind, a couple negatives with hinge cutting. One of the big ones that humors me when I scan social media is guys in your state. It seems like Michigan is like really popular for hinge cutting, which I totally understand why. Woody brows is limited, cover is limited. You do you go out in your woodlot and you hinge cut five five trees, and the next day there's six deer standing there. It's obvious why it's a, a beneficial thing. But then you got guys down south like, oh, it's terrible. It's it's the stupidest thing I ever heard of. It doesn't work. And it's and it's just the difference in the region and the standpoint that Woody Browse is unlimited in the south. And most of the time it's it's pretty regularly occurring, but it's very limited up north. So you've got two different regions kind of feuding over it. And in reality, it's just the fact that there's different needs for the whitetail during different times of the years for those two regions. So hinge cutting, the other big negative that I see with it is um, when it gets too, when we use it too much, you kind of create the game of pickup sticks where it's hard for deer to really use the whole area. You're not creating an area that has usable space throughout the entire three acres. And so you're, they're using the fringes. So if you cut just flush cut trees you get more woody brows available within reach. At the same time, a deer can step over those treetops and and move to the center part of that hinge cut or that area that you've been working. And so that's my take on hinge cutting. I love it. But then I also see too many videos where guys are cutting bigger trees with a chainsaw and trying to hinge cut. And it's like near death every time they cut and they don't even realize it. That's what's another big scary thing to me. And I, I think too, when we when we look at what happens, what the end result of of hinge cutting exclusively will do is you're cutting the trees, but you're wanting to keep them alive. And if you do that in a dense pocket in a certain area, all you've done is just reduce the canopy from let's say 50 feet in the air or 100 feet in the air back down to like three and four foot. If the goal is to keep that tree alive. You've just shortened it. And so if you're going to go in and do work intentionally to create diversity, well, let's cut some of those trees off completely. And so it doesn't grow along the whole spine of the tree and the canopy stays alive. That part's dead and gone. It may come up from the sprout, but that gives room for forbs, grasses, and the brambles to begin to grow. And then we just don't have a really short three, four foot tall canopy that's still closed canopy we've got sunlight to be able to reach and penetrate penetrate through there that ultimately will give you that plant community feel opposed to just shortening the trees when you're doing any of that kind of work do you ever have and i realize this is always going to be site dependent and specific to your own situation but i i don't know if there's some kind of guideline or percentage you could offer when it comes to when you're doing this kind of timber work and you're trying to make these openings is there a size or some kind of ratio that we should be looking at as as a minimum like if we do stuff this small it's just not going to make an impact or is it hey whatever you can do is is better than nothing like how do you approach that because i gotta believe some people are thinking man i can't imagine getting out there and cutting 
five acres of timber or an acre or a half acre. This might be intimidating for someone. Give me a little insight there. Absolutely. And, and so I would say this as an, as my best guesstimate for anybody that's listening, um, if they have timber and they haven't done anything in their timber, just cutting trees will show a, an increase to, to the deer and the wildlife because most of our forests doesn't really matter what state, but there's probably a listener that's got a chunk of woods and it's overstocked and it's unmanaged. And so just cutting some trees will certainly benefit the deer. Um, identify the ones that are weak or unhealthy um, and, and just thin them back. But as far as trying to create the response that Matt and I are really looking for, which has the diversity of forbs and grasses or sedges and rushes, depending on the site, um, and then getting that those saplings or those stump sprouts to really start growing back, you really kind of need to be above a half acre to to, to see that response. If you go any less than a half acre, you're probably going to see an explosion of more uh, brambles or invasives that ha- can grow in that semi-shade better than that full sun. So those forbs and, and grasses, sedges that we're really looking for need more sunlight. And so if you only give them a limited amount and you do that semi-shade or thin the understory, you're going to see a lot of brambles fill in or coralberry uh, in, in much of the Midwest or buckbrush, another common name for it. And you'll see those fill in and you'll say, ah, that didn't really work. Well, it's because you didn't get the amount of sunlight you really needed to get the plant response that we're looking and, for. And that's likely based on the size, a half acre in size. you got to consider the way the sun's moving across the sky mm-hmm. and the height of the trees may block more of that half acre opening if they're taller opposed to shorter trees. So generally speaking, we want to go that acre-ish type of size. And we know at that point, no matter whether it's uh, winter or it's summer, no matter how the sun's moving across the sky, and no matter what the tree size is around, I'm going to get sunlight into this unit at some point throughout the day. And it's going to be enough to generate that type of response that we want. And so we really, really focus and look at um, the exposure. So so topography, how the sun's going to move across an area, whether it's south facing, west facing, north facing, before we cut. And that that helps to determine size um, of those of those types of cuts. I mean, it's sunlight's it's bare, bare minimum. The most important thing. If you're trying to get sunlight into your house, just rip. So I guess my, my, uh, example of this would be take your ceiling and your, and your roof off your house and all you have are walls. If you're in one room, one real small room, uh, the sun can grow across the full sky and you barely, you probably could stay in the, in the shade all day, just from the shade of the walls and that's the surrounding trees for these cuts. So you really need to get big so you can get sunlight into that forest floor. Yeah. And I would say to the person who's like, holy cow, guys, one whole acre. There's probably not one whole acre of young forest regeneration if, if majority of your timber around you is closed canopy. And, and now you just created a limited resource. And now you create something that that deer are going to frequent to that's got a high concentration of food. And if you treat it securely, deer are going to daylight there a lot. And so, yes, it may sound intimidating, but at the same time, you just created something that that is very difficult in most portions of the country to find habitat or plant communities 
that resemble that. So I got a question about this specific scenario and a, and a personal example. Um, on our on our family hunting property up in northern Michigan, we've got a section of our property that is a monoculture of uh, hemlocks. So that's like a big, these are old, mature hemlocks. It's an evergreen species. Um, I don't know. They're, they're 60, 70, 80 feet tall, something like that. There's, there's no understory at all. It's, it's just a big wide open 10, 15 acres of pine needles on the ground and dead branches on the ground and otherwise like a park. Um, and then, you know, this dense cover up top and, I always looked at that or more recently I've looked at that and thought, geez, this is like a, a desert for wildlife most of the year, um, most of the time. And there's a little bit of pass through traffic, but nothing's using it throughout most of the year. And we had a forester out though a couple of years ago and he was looking at the property and stuff. And, you know, one of the ideas I had had is, is something like what you described. You know, we should, we should cut some of this down. We should do something with it. And he recommended we not do that because of the wintering needs of deer up in northern Michigan and, you know, the thermal cover that evergreens like that would provide. Um, and I and I get that, but at the same time, I thought, man, there's got to be a little bit we could do with it. But but what's your take on a situation like that where um, there is a purpose to thermal cover, like a big stand like that, but again, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? My this guy's take was that you shouldn't you shouldn't cut any of it, even though it's fifteen acres of of a dead zone for most of the year. Um, what are your thoughts on that situation specifically, or more generically for other people that might have something like that? Absolutely, and that's where diversity is king in in our book because you look at that area. Sure, it's it's good cover, so you know in the categories of cover, food, water, security. It's good cover. Now, if you stay out of there, it's probably secure. So it feels okay. So yeah, yeah, I mean, it's it's tall now. So there's no, there's no like ground level cover. The only cover is like 20 feet above you. It's cover for this deep snow. I'm assuming is what he's talking about. Yep. So you're, you're going into late winter or mid winter through whenever the snow melts. That's when it's good. That's when it's good cover. But even during that time frame, deer still have to eat. And that's where I'm like, it, it, good cover does me no good if there's no food close in, in close proximity to that. And so if you can find a way, for me, anything 15 acres, 20 acres of the same thing, I'm going, how do I diversify that? And so I would look at it most likely just in my best guess and say, there's probably somewhere in there where um, we open up two areas that are two acres a piece and we try to get young forest regeneration because that's king in the north and try to f- get some food and uh, and still utilize that that those hemlocks as, as quality winter cover uh, in the snow. But even still, I'm, I'm not going to rank it very high on my list of, of benefit um, for, for the very reason that what are the two things during the winter you need you need to be in the sun preferably and out of the wind and so if the wind if it's wide open underneath it and the wind can howl through there you've brought an umbrella as a wind block yeah it doesn't really that, do you much the, good that is the biggest i think misconception or misunderstanding of of evergreens i think they're fantastic for thermal cover if they're in the right density as well as height 
So, so let's take some of those hemlocks away. We get sunlight to be able to penetrate through there. And then we're probably going to have more hemlock regeneration because that's what the site is. And they've been dropping um, cones there and stuff for many, many years. So we're going to have some then that are shorter coming back. And that's where the deer are going to have actually now some cover, but the sunlight throughout the day is actually going to be able to penetrate in there into this, let's say, 10, 15 acre unit, opposed to them being evergreens and not getting sunlight. So we've got energy in there. And then some of the taller trees with the higher branches, once you get sunlight in there, their purpose is to hold the heat in throughout the day. But if all you have are giant tall trees, it's blocking sun, you're not getting sunlight into there. So there's nothing no warmth throughout them to hold throughout the nighttime. So you have to have not only diversity and height, but you know, let, let's cut some, let's get some age diversity of evergreens in there, but we really need to focus on sunlight for it to be, let's uh, used as much for thermal cover opposed to where, where it stands right now. Yeah. Yeah. That, that certainly makes a lot of sense to me. Um, along the lines of the sun, you know, talking about sunlight and sun availability and everything like that, it makes me wonder if, the topic of or the the project of edge feathering is 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 a particularly handy opportunity because when you're operating on edges sun is a much uh, more available commodity so for people that are trying to start some kind of timber work but maybe aren't quite at the level of doing acre or two acre type openings is edge feather is edge feathering a way to start and can you just expand on what that is, the impact that can have on, you know, all these other species and, and how they use edge? Uh, totally. I, I love edge feathering. I would say for listeners in the north, if all the only cutting they've done is the edge feathering, be prepared to bump deer on the edge of your food plots. Because if you don't have quality cover and all you do is edge feather, you're going to see deer most likely bedding in and around those tops because that is the best cover in the neighborhood. So in order of prioritizing, we're trying to move the cover typically away from the food plots or the roads to where the deer are bedded there during the day and you don't have to worry about bumping them as you're moving around the property. Now, to answer your question about edge feathering, it is one of the, I mean, it, it's uh, it's a very, very good tool for improving habitat while also enhancing your hunting. And I mean that by if you fell trees a certain direction, we basically call it closed or open edge feathering. If you close edge feathering, you cut more trees per parallel with the field edge. So it creates almost a natural barrier. And so deer don't travel through it, but it's also during the winter months when the season's over, they're going to get in there and eat those tree tops or eat those stump sprouts. So you're still providing woody brows, but it also helps block them to entering a food plot wherever you lay it out. So you can bring deer closer to your tree stand on whatever side of the food plot you have while also improving your food plot because you don't have those trees competing with the vegetation right up, right up against the drip line from those trees. And so overall, it's a, it's a phenomenal tool, not just for deer, but many, many other species. And I'm glad you made that connection, Mark, with the importance of sunlight to where you're cutting to get that that response that we really want um, that are going to bring value to white-tailed deer. I mean, we've always heard that 
deer creatures of the edge. Well, a lot of that's because we're, that's where there's sunlight and that's what grows the species that they want um, to be foraging on or they're utilizing for cover. So if they like, and I'm air quoting the edge so much, why don't we create a better edge? Why don't we, why don't we make a larger transitional area um, to, to encourage more of that growth? I mean, it just makes more sense to be able to, to do that. So there is a strong correlation between sunlight and, um, you know, getting the benefits out of the plant communities that we can create for, for deer. And then, gosh, the whole host of other species. I mean, we, we did a podcast specifically on edge feathering and, and we stopped ourselves at the 10 different points to be made as to why you should do this practice. We could have gone on for probably 10 more, but <laughs> it's just that valuable. And, and you know, you, you mentioned that, you know, deer edge species, but I think, I mean, I'm having a hard time thinking of any species that any kind of animal that doesn't prefer or relate to edges like edge, edge habitat is a premier habitat zone for almost everything, whether you're talking fish or deer or birds or rabbits. I mean, I just, there's so many benefits to these junctures between habitat types. If you're on the edge of something where you can get one thing quickly in this direction, one thing quickly in the other direction that just it just seems to almost be a universally beneficial thing for all sorts of critters. Um, I, I mean, is there an exception to that or do you think that's true? Oh, it's, I, I totally think it's true. It's, it's just, there's so much more diversity that occurs on those, on those edges because of the different plant communities and they have the ability to be cover food. Oh, I'm in food. No, I'm in cover. And they can bounce back and forth. And in, in, in other aspects, they can have, pretty good cover and pretty good food and still use that edge as a, as an opportunity to use the diversity and, and benefit from it. Yeah. So, so best practices when it comes to edge feathering, is there anything you'd mention for people that want to start giving that a try and, and yeah, best practices, I guess I'll just, I'll just leave it there without rambling. <laughs> Don't wear your chainsaw gear, <laughs> helmet, chaps, safety glasses, gloves, and try to identify the trees if you're kind of new to chainsawing identify the trees that have a good uh, a decent lean on them that aren't huge so even if you do mess up it's not going to kill you and just try to thin the edge and put some canopy on the ground and try to cut the small trees first um, or the trees that are easiest to drop first and just take it with Take it slowly and just see the change happen and uh, don't get carried away and think that you've got to get a 20-yard strip from the field. So go from your food plot edge, your crop field edge, and you say, I have to go 20 yards in. No ifs, ands, or buts. I'm doing it. Just feather the edge and, and over time, okay, once you get more confident with a chainsaw, start cutting more trees. But ultimately, the point of it all is just to put structure on the ground and get more sunlight into further into the forest and provide a limited resource of woody brows and structure for cover. And, and I would say don't force a tree in a direction it does not want to go. Safety first. When that tree is down, get a, a tractor or a skid steer and push it where it needs to go. That's totally fine and, and 100% acceptable. And obviously you're creating more light in an area. 
So always be mindful um, if invasive species are of concern in your area. Um, birds love to sit along the edge of fields on limbs, so they may deposit seeds there. So it's not a once-and-done practice. You may need to go back and, and spot treat something that comes back that's an that's a, um, invasive species. So be watchful in the next couple of years. Um, but it, and just I'll, do it. I'll I mean, take a oof. step a step backwards and say, if you are cutting into an old field area that has a cool season base below it, try to spray out that cool season mm -hmm. first before you drop the trees. And, and you'll be much better off than trying to spray that cool season out from treetops laying on top of it. And, you know, we say this with so many of our practices, the worst thing you can do is do nothing. Um, many places in the country, uh, the habitat is very poor um stagnant we yeah it's just just stagnant it, it's been preserved to death or been just idle till a point that it's unhealthy and so the worst thing you could do is let it continue to be that way we're pretty aggressive land managers and aggressive conservationists and i want results fast life's short let's get some things going and so let's just cut some trees along the edge see what happens don't get ourselves hurt and uh if you don't do it exactly perfect the first time well go back in a few months and cut some more trees yeah. there's no shortage of trees right and historically here's the good thing historically in in a lot of areas if you had this just junction of of timber and fields naturally that that would have burned that field would have burned and so it would have probably ran across or screamed across at a fast pace and slammed into that woodlot so we would have had this if you will almost messy shrubby um conjunction of, of some dead trees and and uh lots of sunlight getting in and grasses and brambles it i i'm not gonna say it was the most aesthetically pe appealing let's say junction of, of field and timber um but it was useful and wildlife loved it and there's a lot of food and cover in there so it may not look the most appealing when it's said and done but by golly you're going to see some wildlife use it yeah, that's a perfect perfect segue too, because like you mentioned, Adam, you know, there's there's a lot of of land now that is lacking any kind of disturbance, and you know, Mother Nature's disturbance of choice over the eons has historically been fire, like you mentioned, which is, you know, less so now. We're changing, but for a long time, fire was almost eradicated from the landscape by virtue of people trying to stop and, you know, end any fire, you know, shut down any fire. Now, of course, people are realizing the value of fire and starting to starting to let fires run or manage them a little bit more or run prescribed fires and whatnot. But, you know, even today, man-made fire, when done pr appropriately, of course, is still an incredible tool, but it is an intimidating one for a lot of people. Um, it's the final tool of the three you mentioned. We got to talk about it. Can you guys run me through uh, a beginner's guide to fire, but again with a unique angle of not just deer, but but all these other things? Um, you hear about prescribed fire a lot, um, but uh, you know it's not mentioned as much. But I know it does a ton for all these other things: turkeys, birds, insects. I mean, fire might be number one for a lot of that. Absolutely. And I think that that's, uh, there's a reason for that. I mean, you said it best is historically it was one of the biggest disturbances used. Um, I mean that and grazing there, there it is. That, that, if you want to shape a landscape, grazing and fire, let's do it. 
And uh, with prescribed fire, it is very scary. Um, and we should have massive amounts of respect for it. Um, Smokey scared us to death for it. Um, but our plants, our native plants, in most of the places in the country um, were shaped by fire. And if we want to create healthy landscapes, we take a landscape and we manage it with native disturbance. And prescribed fire comes in with that. And uh, I think for a beginner, what did we do first? Contact our state agency or government agency uh, wherever we're at and see if there's any prescribed fire workshops. See what even the regulations are. There's a lot of states where you can't even you can't just go and burn when you want to burn. There's certain time windows or frankly, there's not even the ability for some of you guys out there that unfortunately your state doesn't allow it to be used regularly. Um, so just find out the information about it and then try to find some courses or classes where they have uh, the, the education in place. Missouri has a great prescribed fire course where landowners can take and get the experience, go to the field, actually burn some acres, see how it's going. I know, uh, and, and see how it reacts in grasses or leaf litter. If it's a head fire, backing fire, how terrain plays in. There's so many things about prescribed fire that we need to understand. Now, that's not to get that hopefully doesn't overwhelm you um, because fire can be, you know, if you're doing backing fire down slopes, it's pretty boring. And you'll probably think, boy, I was scared of this. But then you go to the bottom and you light it like, let's speed things up. And then quickly you're scared. And uh, and so are your neighbors. And so that's something where just educating yourself first and foremost on if it's possible for you and then just trying to get the education with government agencies on on prescribed fire courses, uh, any in-field course, they take some volunteers. We used to have volunteers when I worked for the Department of Conservation where people would come just to get the experience. And uh, and so all that to be said is that's the first and foremost on prescribed fire. And I would say let, let's compare that just real quickly to the first time you picked up a chainsaw. Most people with a little bit of experience of running a chainsaw, they're comfortable with it. They're comfortable utilizing it. But the first time they used it, they knew that this tool could potentially harm them and they needed experience with it before they were proficient with it. And so think of fire and utilizing fire kind of like that. You should have a, a healthy fear, but you should really have an understanding of how to utilize the tool, how to fell a tree, how to run that chainsaw safely, take the necessary precautions, and then use the tool as designed. And really, if you do those, you take those measures, it's a wonderful, fantastic tool. I, I, I can think of the last two days, two clients um, that have applied prescribed fire to their properties for the first time ever. One in Virginia and one in Missouri, and they loved it. They were fantastic, but it took them education um, and knowledge to be able to apply it appropriately. And it changes composition, it changes structure, and it manages plant communities on a large scale opposed to a chainsaw. You can only go so fast or, or cover so much ground in acres uh, when running a chainsaw, but prescribed fire in an afternoon or a matter of a couple hours, we're talking 30, 40, 50, 60 acres can easily be done. And and you have that big of an um, ability to manage and steer a plant community in a certain direction based on the timing, 
fire frequency, fire return intervals, and and humidity, all these different factors. But that's a big opportunity to manage and improve habitat for the wide array of, of species that we, we care about or concern about or, or want to just frankly improve. I've got a text here, Mark, that from a client, I haven't even told Matt this because well, he's been traveling, I've been traveling, but I got a text from a guy and he says, Adam, where do we post a testimonial? Laugh out loud. We burned for the first time 11 days ago and I busted a small covey of quail last night in that area. These are the first quail we've ever seen in these parts. And it's just like, they're not there. You think they're not there. And then you do this work and all of a sudden it's like, whoa, where have you been all my life? And and it, not to say that everyone's going to experience that (laughs) sort of deal, but like it it does provide immediate types of attractions and um, that, that you can't replicate that with a chainsaw. You, You just can't. And so each one has its place. But we have to first realize its place. Once we know that there's value there in this tool, don't just leave that knowledge in your head. Apply it. Put it on the landscape and do it responsibly. There's there's hours that could be devoted to fire and talking about all the intricacies of doing a prescribed fire properly and all that. So I, I, I – Part of me wants to try to dive into it further. Part of me thinks it's a lost cause in this situation. So, so instead, I'm going to stay high level. I guess I want to know if what I'm missing. If I if I'm talking about, I want I want more butterflies. I want more grouse or quail or pheasants. I want more turkeys. I want the small mammals like rabbits and squirrels and voles and moles and all that stuff. I want my water on my property to be clean and healthy. I want the soil to be vibrant and rich. I want uh, diverse plant life, and I, of course, want deer happy and healthy on this property too. I'm, I'm going to be thinking about managing timber. I'm going to be managing old fields. I'm going to reintroduce fire to the landscape. I'm going to use that chainsaw appropriately. I'm going to think about herbicide use when and where appropriate. Am I missing out on any major foundation or any major tool in the chest that would be that would be worth getting out there to 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 put a physical um to leave my thumbprint on the land in a positive way uh, I, I don't know if we put enough emphasis on this one word in this podcast we've mentioned it but through all of that you could sum it up i think with one main word is native and using native plants both forbs grasses sedges rushes shrubs trees Native being also fire, natural fire. And then if you really want to get into the weeds and say, let's just try to replicate nature as best possible, figure out a way to graze it to even add more disturbance. But we might, I I don't know, Mark, I've listened to a lot of your podcasts and I don't think grazing has been touched on much. So we might be the, we might be uncapping a can that we don't want to go down. But, um, yeah, native species and, and just trying to replicate nature and nature's natural cycles. And if you just focused solely on that and say, okay, let's just add diversity, let's promote natives, 
let's just do everything we can to to make this a very diverse ecosystem. And so I want diverse forests with young forests and, and old growth forests, but I want healthy trees. I want to remove uh, unproductive trees. I want to promote edge feathering. I want to promote native grasslands or old fields. I want to add shrubs. I want to restore my riparian areas. By the way, it might be introduced beavers, not to go down that rabbit hole, but uh, <laughs> try to replicate beaver activity in riparian areas to try to improve diversity there as well. And then all of a sudden you're like, whoa, where did this deer come from? Look at this guy. And all of a sudden your deer are much healthier. And I think that's just one of the big takeaways is the fact that you can completely forget about deer in your management and all of a sudden they blow up because you've been focused on landscape health. Yeah, I, I would certainly say that. I think a lot of people really go, they they try to dive too far or too deep into land management without first understanding the value or the importance of, of sunlight in the whole game, as well as water. And we haven't even talked about water and the way water flows and the diversity that it creates and flooding is a whole other type of disturbance. And when we're really talking about just overall land and health and whole nother whole nother podcast we'll tackle another time but but when we when we look at those two things that really helps determine what each acre on any given property should be and how it should be managed um and and if there's someone out there thinking like gosh where where do i start um certainly consider just starting and I want to say that, like, don't, don't, don't Riveting. overthink it. Yeah, <laughs> seriously. It, it's like, just, just start. Because once you see a disturbance and see and observe what happens afterwards, it's just fuel to the fire of, I can do this. I can create more of this. And maybe I'm going to learn something in the process, but, but just begin to create these disturbances with fire, with a chainsaw, uh, with herbicide if necessary. And, and watch what happens. And then you'll slowly go down this, this trail of just land management of, uh, man, I, I care more about the land and the health of this ecosystem and, and all the creatures that are utilizing it. Or before I just thought about deer and how I had access a tree stand. Um, but things just kind of reprioritize themselves when you know that you are the cause, the root cause of, of improved habitat. You created that disturbance. That that was, you know, in your power. And so you just got to go out and do and, it. And frankly, I'd be shocked if somebody took this and started doing the disturbances and adding the diversity. And they didn't see an improvement of deer size and deer health and deer sightings. Uh, it just time and time again, our clients come to us saying, you know, I once only cared about deer and now I care about everything. But yet I'm still seeing bigger deer than I've ever seen. It's, it's amazing how that works. It's, uh, it's really interesting. I'm, I'm kind of personally going through this journey myself. And, um, and one of the things that I think has inspired me to think a little differently now is, is starting to look more long-term and big picture. And so thinking about, you know, originally it was just like me, like, how can I kill a deer this year? And then gradually I've started thinking more and more about, well, how can I make sure that, you know, there's somewhere special for my son to experience something down the line. And then even outside of that, you start, 
you know, you start thinking or you start hearing about some of the things I mentioned at the top. You start hearing about how, you know, every day 6,000 acres are paved over, put houses on or whatever, whatever, whatever. And you start, you go back. I went back this past weekend and I was at my parents and I went back and walked through the woods where I learned to bow hunt. And there's houses back in the spots I used to hunt. And there's, you know, ATV trails and roads through the spots that I used to sneak through and look for turkeys. And my old blind is, is crushed by, um, you know, this, uh, this thing and that thing and, and all, you know, all of these special places that we each have, um, are slowly being eroded by umpteen different forces out there and pressures out there as, you know, as, as just, cities grow, people spread out, blah, 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 blah. These things are happening. And and I start thinking about how do I make my little difference of, of keeping a few places still healthy and wild and and keeping some critters out here. And, and, and just thinking about those types of things, you start to realize that if you do have the privilege of having a little bit of land that you can influence, um, I think you can start to look at it as a privilege, but then also as almost an obligation. Like if, if there's some way we can keep a little bit of this stuff from going down the, you know, down the road of becoming a parking lot someday, like, man, I, I kind of feel like I, I have to try to think about ways to do that because I know how special these things and places are. And I, I was lucky enough to get to enjoy them. And, and I don't know. I mean, obviously I don't want to put that on anybody else, but that's the kind of stuff that I'm thinking about these days. And, and it's making me want to think about, water quality and songbirds and, and all of that. And lo and behold, it also leads to better deer hunting too. And it's, it's a really nice cycle that points to the obvious, but sometimes overlooked fact that all of these things are connected, like you guys mentioned. And, um, and that's, that's, what's got me excited about trying to, trying to think in this kind of way more often. And, and I don't know, I'm, I'm glad there's people like you guys that are helping people do that. Yeah, we appreciate that. Now that's, we're right there with you where you think about the future and you think about these game animals and, and non-game animals. I mean, it seems like every time you turn around, you're hearing the story of some some species is in decline and now we have to do this or that to try to help that species along. And it's just, I'm sick of bad news and, and I'm sick and tired hearing these bad stories. And, and it's like, let's just try to get more productive and and get more initiative and instead of talking about quail declining let's go do something and help the quail and it may only be that one covey on your own place but maybe knock on your neighbor's door and say hey this is what i'm doing i know you think i'm a deer guy but i'm really focused on rough grouse or i'm really focused on quail and i'm really trying to ensure the future of that species and you might find the key that unlocks the conversation with the neighbor that says you know what sure I'd love to work with you or you can do all that stuff over here. I'd love to hear more. And, and before you know it, you can hopefully build off of that, get more neighbors involved. Um, and then of course you'll get a lot more neighbors involved when all of a sudden there's bigger deer happening. (laughs) It's funny how that helps. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. exactly. And and Mark, you're really hitting on, um, the second aspect of, of our company, which obviously their title is land and legacy. We're, we're trying to do this from, from a legacy standpoint. It's, it's not just the here and now, you know, from a, a, a season to a season, you know, deer hunting wise, but we're trying to make impacts and educate people to the degree that 
when you pass on that property or it sells and goes to, you know, the next person or stays in the family, they've seen the work that you've done and how you've changed that landscape for the better. And, and it's apparent because of, of the diversity that's there, not only in plant communities, but in all the wildlife and the abundance that's, that's obvious to people. Um, when they're walking the property, they see it. And, and just the educational opportunities that for, for children, for family to be able to enjoy throughout this entire process. I mean, it really is a transformative um, process that, that a land can go through if the right techniques are done. Um, and and I, I guess this is a good thing, but a bad thing at the same time, but relatively property and, and habitat's pretty poor around the whole country. So you do something positive and in the right way, you're going to see those benefits that we're talking about. And again, use that as fuel to the fire to to create this legacy effect of, man, I own this property for five or 10 years. When I held it, I decided to change things and, and make it improved. Um, that was my responsibility when I lived there, when I owned it. And I'm, I'm going to continue that with the next property I own or whatever the case may be. Yeah. So for people that that want to explore some of these things further, I will go ahead and just recommend they check out your podcast and your videos and everything you guys have got going on with Land and Legacy. But uh, for other folk or for 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 next steps after that, um, whether it be for some inspiration or actual tactical advice, do you have anything you can recommend to folks for additional resources to to look at habitat improvement and land stewardship? beyond just deer? I think a lot of the nonprofits set up for certain species are are, are just phenomenal. Quail Forever, Pheasants Forever, National Wild Turkey Federation, uh, NDA. Rough Grouse. Rough Grouse Society. uh, uh, Yeah, I was going to say. Southeastern Grasslands Initiative. Southeastern Grasslands is great for historical information as well as the, you know, just the overall decline in education there. Um, the Audubon Society mm-hmm. does a lot of great stuff with the birds. And then there's even state agencies that we love to follow that have are putting out a lot of great research and studies. So you've got Mississippi State Deer Lab, which is doing great stuff. Even uh, Florida, Florida Deer Lab now with Mark Slashley down there. Um, and then the state of Tennessee does a lot. Dr. Craig Harper yep. does really well, uh, does amazing stuff. Oklahoma. Penn State, Oklahoma State does really good stuff for um, incorporating native type grazing systems on native grasslands. Um, Noble Research. Noble Research Institute. Yeah. You know, and, and, and those, all those people are, are, are really doing research to understand certain native ecosystems or native, uh, species. And they're just packed with great information. Perfect. All right. Well, uh, I appreciate it guys for people that do want to see what you've got going on, where can they find all your content online? We are at Landon Legacy and sign at Facebook and Instagram as well as YouTube. Perfect. Nice and simple. Well, I appreciate the time. This has been fun. I'm I'm always learning something new from you guys and uh, coming away inspired to get out there and, and do some more work. So, so thank you for that and keep on keeping on. Oh, I appreciate it, Mark. Thanks for having us on. Yep. Thanks for covering this topic. Really appreciate it. Hey, let's uh, let's jump down one of those other rabbit holes someday down the road and talk about grazing or water or 
whatever other crazy cans of worms you want to open up. <laughs> <laughs> Can do. All right, friends, that is it for today and for this week. Thanks for being here. I appreciate you tuning in. Hopefully you got a few new ideas you can put on the ground in your neck of the woods and uh, stay tuned next week. We're continuing with the series going to be speaking and exploring uh, with someone new chatting about other issues and ideas related to these wild places we care about the wild animals we care about and uh interesting stuff on those lines so appreciate your time and until next time stay wired to hunt i'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide-open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own well head over to land.com they've got ranches forests mountains streams you name it search by acreage you can search by location you can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of land.com it is where the adventure begins